Welcome to another episode of Conduct Detrimental. Dan Lust, Dan Wallace. We are back on the grind. Dan, how's it going, my friend? It's going well, Dan. Nice to be back with you. A nice little little string of um, co-hosting gigs with you. You know, a couple of weeks in a row, we're getting into our groove. And another big week, both sports law and ice hockey and fantasy sports. And also also just like real law, we had the Johnny Depp verdict that came in right before you about to record. So I think we had some nice R&R over uh, Memorial Day weekend. I had some big uh, family reunion up in the Berkshires. You can tell I'm a little bit hoarse, a lot of... uh, Screaming, a lot of chasing little kids around, which was uh, always fun. And Dan, how about yourself? You do anything fun over uh, Memorial Day weekend? What any New York Ranger fan who's worth his salt is going to do, which is watch Game 7 on Memorial Day evening. Uh, the Rangers won on the road against the Carolina Hurricanes, advancing to the Stanley Cup Conference Finals, which just blew my mind. That was that was everything around my Memorial Day. I was solely focused on that, on that game, and I came very close to pulling the trigger and going to uh, Raleigh-Durham to watch the game. I wish I had. There were a lot of Ranger fans in attendance. Unfortunately, not me, but it was just such an amazing thing to see this team advance after having not been in the playoffs and and being basically underrated by so many people, probably including by myself. I'm pointing at you for those. We're not putting the video out, but I'm pointing at you, Dan, because privately you picked Pittsburgh to beat the Rangers. You picked Carolina to beat the Rangers. So Dan, it's only fitting that you pick Tampa this time around. I think that's what's deserving. We need to give the Rangers all the luck we can here. You got to pick yeah. against them. Well, uh, of course I will, but that's why you play the games. I'm going to root for the Rangers. I think they have a shot to beat Tampa, but going into this, the Rangers had not really had any kind of experience as a team, at least this group playing together in the playoffs. And I've always been of the, the view that it takes a couple of years of you know failure and being knocked down and learning what it takes to win in the playoffs before you can advance on. Tampa went through that. The great New York Islanders teams went through that. And I just thought the experience difference between Pittsburgh and the Rangers and Carolina and the Rangers in terms of previous playoff experience was going to make all the difference. What I didn't factor in was that the Rangers imported so many players with like a, an experienced winning pedigree, guys like Barkley Goodrow, Tyler Mott, Andrew Kopp, Justin Braun, who played over 100 playoff games with San Jose. They brought in a lot of guys with experience, I think added a dimension to the room to overcome the lack of experience. Well, Dan, congrats to the Rangers. Congrats to the Celtics. Congrats to the Warriors. Those guys are playing in the finals. I watched that game over Memorial Day weekend. But Dan, I kicked off my Memorial Day weekend on that Friday. I watched basically, hopefully uh, my, my boss is not listening, but I watched a lot of those closing arguments on Friday, uh, the Johnny Depp case. So what we want to do this episode, we want to talk first, just because it's, it's topical, we want to talk the Johnny Depp verdict that just came in. We're going to break down a compensatory, punitive, counterclaim, a little bit of the closing arguments, and how basically the lawyer's comments resulted in Johnny Depp being held in on a $2 million counterclaim. We'll talk about that. Three topics we want to cover on the sports law front. Deshaun Watson, the 23rd accuser there now, claims seemingly uh, about to trickle in sex trafficking. So, you know, hopefully people are following the twists and turns of this Watson saga as we get close to a suspension. We'll talk about that. Dan Snyder now called to testify in front of Capitol Hill. We'll talk about that. And a story that broke at the end of last week that I had a lot of fun covering as a San Francisco Giants fan. Jack Peterson, Tommy Pham, the slap heard round the fantasy football world. And all of a sudden, Mike Trout is involved in that story. So we'll break that down. And then just a quick footnote, we covered the Jerry Judy criminal case a couple weeks ago, I guess, or maybe last week on the podcast, that Jerry Judy case wide receiver for the Denver Broncos has been dismissed by the DA over there. Quote from the DA, after reviewing the evidence, 
I always believed that no crime had been committed and all charges would be dismissed. That's according to Harvey Steinberg. So we'll see if there's a suspension on Jerry Judy, but that case we're not going to cover it because those charges no longer exist. So Dan, I guess we'll start over in the real non-sports world. We'll start with Johnny Depp. So I have my thoughts, but Dan, I, I texted you, you know, the verdict. I'm happy I broke the news to you and you had a pretty strong reaction to the verdict. So I'll let you start. I have my thoughts on, on the closings, but, you know, the floor is yours, my friend. Yeah, I think the judge in this case blew it by agreeing or allowing the proceedings to be televised. Right. I mean, these are allegations surrounding or, or at least evidence about alleged sexual and domestic violence. And in a case of this level of sensitivity about the sort of the private you know, lives of, of you know, two well-known you know, Hollywood film actors, but more importantly, the allegations involved, you know, you know, whether there was you know, any truth to the domestic abuse allegations, that should never have seen a, a, a television camera. And she lost control of the proceedings because while that provided a lot of juicy information to come out and, and be commented upon on social media, Twitter, TikTok, I, I think it was really unfair to answer Amber heard because how could you expect the jury that goes home at night to completely, you know, just observe a blackout, a media blackout and not take a look at TikTok and, and Instagram and see the barrage or the one-sidedness of the invective directed against Amber Heard. So if you're a juror and, you know, you want to find out what's going on in the case, what the public opinion is, you must be questioning your own thought process if you think Amber Heard is winning the case because it was so decidedly against Amber Heard that I felt, I don't know if it rises to the level of depriving her of a right to a fair trial, but the judge should never have allowed it. That, that allowed the, the circus atmosphere to pervade the trial. And it, I think it led to this excessive and incessant amount of online bullying. And it was almost like the, the demonization of Amber Heard and, and, and Depp's lawyers are, are not innocent in this regard either. They were very disrespectful. The cross-examination of Heard by Ms. Vasquez, I was offended by just sort of the, the she, she was very mean-spirited and almost bullying-like. And as a judge, I want to get one last point in, the judge lost control of the trial. She was like a potted plant and no judge should ever have allowed something like a circus atmosphere like this to have occurred. No television. And certainly I would have reined the lawyers in with some of the, 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 the face making, the hugs, the playing to the audience. Just unacceptable. You know, I watched first week of the trial, then I you know, was catching recaps, but I watched, I tried to watch everything of the closing. You know, I guess let's start just to respond to your comments. I mean, like, you know, if you read, if you read the comments on social media, I think people assume that Johnny Depp was like, you know, we're, we're sports betting people here, like the minus 600, 900 favorite, like the overwhelming favorite to win. But at the end of the day, this was a case that required a showing of actual malice, which yep. and you and I have spoke about it on, on the show before. That's very hard to prove. So, you know, if I was scoring this, we never covered in the pod beforehand, but it was telling people, you know, over the weekend when the jury was deliberating, I'm like, I don't know, you know, minus 120, minus 150. I think depth should be favored here just because you know, I, I've watched the case fairly closely, but it's certainly not like an overwhelming favorite. The only thing I'll add, Dan, I, I watched, you know, I think the obviously social media was very much one sided. Someone, uh, Matt Timpanic, who's, you know, obviously appeared as a, uh, you know, on a show before and gave commentary. He once in a while would say when Amber Heard's lawyers, he would go on law and crime and different shows. And he would say when Amber Heard's, Amber Heard's lawyers did a good job, you know, on various points, cross whatever they were doing, he would just get like attacked. And yeah. I didn't think that was fair because I, I watched the trial and the lawyers for both sides are very well credentialed. Obviously, they've done good things in their career and have nothing to do with this case. So it's not really. I mean, 
we can make fun of Amber Heard's lawyers when they're objecting to their own question. Obviously, you know, everyone's going to, no one's perfect. People are going to make mistakes, but you know, I didn't think it was fair that the lawyers are getting criticized at every level. Yeah. So the only thing I want to add, and then, you know, I can get back to you. I, I think on, on closing, I watched very closely. I think the, the big mistake, you know, on closing, I heard that in it, I made, I made a note of this, you know, I figured we'd cover it in the show. Amber Heard's lawyers basically said, if you believe, you know, any instance of assault, we win our case. So all these different acts of, you know, aggression and, and whatever else that occurred over, you know, their, their marriage or the relationship together. If you believe one of those, then we win. And I don't, you know, again, I think that on its face, it's like, well, obviously, you know, there's so many of these, but it, mm. it set, you know, so I guess here's, here's where the mistake I, I think was made. It was really time management. So if anybody's watching, I watched the closing very closely. Two hours were allotted for closing on each side. And Amber Heard's lawyers spent an hour and 54 minutes on the first round of closing. And Johnny Depp's lawyers spent, I think it was like an hour 20, uh, an hour 25. So on rebuttal, Johnny Depp's lawyers got 36 minutes and Amber Heard's lawyers got only six minutes on rebuttal. So Johnny Depp's lawyers really phrased and they mm -hmm. took that statement that, is, you know, one instance of assault and Johnny Depp's lawyers teed it up. Do you think that Amber Heard is the type of person who would make everything up, you know, and they really took the best punch that Amber Heard's lawyers could bring. And they took 36 minutes to spin it on her. And Amber Heard's lawyers really had six minutes to, you know, to uh, throw together some type of a bottle in closing. So, I mean, that's the last things that the jury heard. So I, I thought Johnny Depp was going to win. I just didn't think it was this overwhelming impossibility yeah. that, that he was going to lose. Yeah, but he lost a defamation case filed yeah. in the in the UK. Uh, oh. You know, a, new, a newspaper accused him of, you know, good domestic violence. He sued for defamation. He lost right. in the UK, loses against a media publication, but wins against his ex-wife for publishing a newspaper article. So where do you see the, the how do you harmonize those two seemingly inconsistent results? I got to give you the quote, speaking of things that, that were lost on. I don't know. You, you can't. I mean, a jury's Juries are unpredictable. I think that's that's the saying in the biz, that's right? For sure, for sure. You don't know what they're going to do, and I and I think you and I uh, call you know just call it like we see it. I I think if the jury had decided against Johnny Depp in it in their entirety, right? Obviously, we should talk about what this is, right? Fifteen million dollars awarded to Johnny Depp, ten million in compensatory, five million in punitives. On the counterclaim, Amber Heard wins two million in compensatory, zero in the punitive. My wife called me right after the verdict came out, and. She goes, how, did, how does Johnny Depp get 10 and Amber Heard gets two? And I'm like, well, Johnny Depp makes a lot more money than Amber Heard. So that's probably the easiest explanation for it. You know, but I, I, I think they tried to split the baby in the best way they could. But on a compensatory level, it's just there's no way the numbers are going to get close. So I'm going to read the quote just so we should, we should focus on this part. So how did Johnny Depp lose the two million counterclaim? It was a quote actually by Johnny Depp's lawyer which, you know, that it's not a statement by Johnny Depp. So Johnny Depp didn't say anything that was ruled to be defamatory. This is the quote that Johnny Depp's lawyer, you know, Waldman gave to, I think it was the Daily Mail, quote, quite simply, this was an ambush, a hoax. They set Mr. Depp up by calling the cops, but the first attempt didn't do the trick. The officers came to the penthouses, thoroughly searched and interviewed and left after seeing no damage to face or property. So Amber and her friends spilled a little wine, roughed the place up, got their story straight under the direction of a lawyer and publicist and placed a call to 911. So it's, I don't know what exactly they, the jury felt was defamatory within that statement, but again, viewed yeah. with actual malice, but that's it. It's not a statement made by Depp. It's one made by his attorney. And I guess they had to view that as an agent of Johnny Depp. So Depp basically, well, he emerged here kind of unscathed. 
Well, it's not quite over. There will undoubtedly be appeals, but before the appeals, the judge will be receiving, or I guess have to decide motions for judgment, notwithstanding the verdict, motions for new trial, and also motions for remittiture, which is a reduction of the monetary damages award. So it's quite possible that the disparity between what what Amber Heard got in damages and what Depp was awarded in damages might be narrowed a little a little bit more. But I think there's there's going to be a long life to this litigation post-trial. It probably won't be finally resolved until after the last appeals court decides the last issue, which could be a few years away. But for Depp's purposes, he got a victory just by having this trial televised and by having this sort of mob, you know, just favor him so decisively and be just sort of demeaning and, you know, just the the treatment towards Amber Heard's lawyers and to Amber Heard herself, I think accomplished everything that Johnny Depp would have hoped for. He won this case the moment the judge made the improvident decision to televise it. And I don't know if that's a grounds for appeal, but that's that's largely why his his career and his image have been, have been rehabilitated because it was televised. If this occurred in a normal federal court case without any uh, reporting other than sort of courthouse insiders, it would have lost that you know the testimony and the actions wouldn't have resonated quite the same way as you know hundreds of millions watching it live in real time were able to divine from it. So that that's where that's the moment he won the case because he projected much better than Amber Heard did, but that doesn't mean she deserved to be on the losing side of a defamation lawsuit. So I really question the wisdom of that decision. It was just an awful, ill-advised, improvident decision by a trial judge, given what occurred here over social media and, and, and the near certainty that many jurors probably took a quick peek at what was happening on the internet. Right. I, I imagine everybody was watching it uh, and also outside the courtroom, if you kind of looked around, there were uh Spectators will say wearing pirate hats. There were cheers emanating from outside once people were kind of uh, following the case. And so, you know, it is what it is, Dan. It's not the first big case to be televised like that. It was the first one where a woman who made credible allegations where they're both they're both involved in just this horrible marriage. And it was the demonization of Amber Heard and the canonization of Johnny Depp. And something 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 about that just offends my sensibilities. I think they should have been left in the same place where they started a six week trial over, you know, what film projects they lost in front of jurors who have to slog this out for six weeks. I would have left them, even Stephen, exactly where they started. Well, Dan, again, unpredictability of juries, but we'll leave it there. Uh, You know, they both issued statements. Depp is happy. You know, Amber Heard is heartbroken. And we can leave it there. We'll see uh, what the appeals take on this case. Okay, Dan, let's move over to our, our sports docket. Deshaun Watson, Dan Snyder, Jock Peterson. Dan, let's start with Deshaun Watson. The big news, again, kind of another cycle. Want to take give credit to Tony Busby. Want to place blame on him. A 23rd lawsuit has been filed against Deshaun Watson. Again, another, still represented by Tony Busby. This is another accuser who, after watching the HBO Sports special on Deshaun Watson, basically decided that she was also going to file charge and she commented that she appreciated the strength of the other accusers. So just kind of leaving it there. So what's new about this? I guess the big highlight from the petition, people want to latch on to anything here. You know, I, I think on a previous podcast, and we spoke about how you know, Deshaun Watson would bring the allegations that he would bring his own towels to these massages. I don't know if that's weird, not weird, but you know, I, it was a big thing. The one that has, has made the rounds on social media is the allegation here that Deshaun Watson 
refused to let the masseuse leave the room while he changed. Just, I don't know why one would need to do that. And the allegation specifically with respect to Watson, that this 2030 accuser wanted to massage Watson's legs. Watson is claiming that, or she's claiming that Watson exclusively wanted his buttocks massage. So that's the allegation that's out here. The other part of this, which we'll see if maybe launches into another portion of, of these, uh, these lawsuits, one of the massage therapy places here is claimed that they were aware of Watson's propensity and were brokered, I think, three masseuses to Watson and received some type of compensation. So we'll see if there's another party added to this lawsuit. Dan, I think the timing is conspicuous, obviously, as a suspension looms for Watson. You know, that's, I think, they're angling maybe for mm. June, July, August, but I think the timing is suspect. But Dan, are you, are you getting Watson fatigue over here? I think I can see it in your face. Definitely. I mean, we've devoted probably eight to 10 episodes in part to Deshaun Watson. And, and I think it is worth mentioning that with this new lawsuit, it does kind of underscore the danger for Watson to settle any of these cases. Because if you settle 22 or 23 cases, you've got to be able to expect that nobody else is going to come out of the woodwork. And I'm not, and how could anyone be confident? How could Watson be confident that Tony Busby is currently representing every potential victim of Deshaun Watson? So unless you're entirely sure nobody else is out there, the risk of settling is that uh, other other alleged or potential victims are going to come out of the woodwork because you're not good. It's not a class action lawsuit where you're getting releases from any and all claims from anyone who potentially provided services between these these dates. You're exposing yourself to further litigation. If you think you're settling 22 or 23, that might not put the cat back in the bag. That's the risk he faces. Right. And, and we've said this. I mean, I, I tried to say it like these allegations that are coming out, this 23rd accuser, some of the stuff is new stuff that we had not known before. So that's why I think the NFL is trying to wait. But to your point, Dan, there is no time frame, you know, that they're aware that another person is not going to come forward. And right. And even if the statute of limitations passes somewhere down the road, it's not going to stop someone from speaking to an HBO or, or one of these outlets. So I think the NFL is set up to look like they are punishing Watson in too light of a manner because we're going yeah. to find out more things afterwards. It's just my my sense of it. And Dan, we talk about public trials, right? You know, the trial for this case is set to take place after next year's Super Bowl. Could you imagine, let's say they give him an eight game suspension, right? Which, you know, I think some would view as being fair, an eight game suspension, maybe a 10 game suspension. Who knows? Fair um, if, he, if, he, if he's innocent. but Some, uh, some. I'm just okay. I'm just saying some some would say he should get the full season or some. I know there are some crazy people that are saying he should never play football again, which people have done bad things and have played football again. Not not to say that one mm. is right and one is wrong, but People have wide ranges here. But Dan, all, all I'll point out is that there could be a trial in this case like we had with Johnny Depp, right? And the same allegations that you and I have read in the petitions for, and we've known about for over a year, people are finding out about them because that same petition yeah. allegations, they're leaking in terms of deposition. They're not new allegations. People are just now saying them out loud. So if you're going to have a new news cycle when they're written on a complaint, when they're said in a deposition, and then they're said on the witness stand, then the NFL set up to look like they're being too lenient because we're going to learn more after the suspension is rendered. So I think yeah. a Ray Rice situation is certainly looming. Here. Well, well, well Ray, Ray Rice is probably on the extreme end. While it's not 23 victims, it's one victim. The difference going from you know allegations to having proof, video proof of, of his wife being assaulted in the elevator, obviously changed the dimension of the case. And, and from Watson's perspective, I mean, how do you agree? How do you settle with 23, not knowing how many more are going to come forward? And for the NFL, how do you punish Watson for this group of alleged incidents and then have somebody else emerge and accuse him of similar conduct covering that relatively same time period. 
So maybe, you know, as I said on the last podcast, it might be in, in, in Watson's interest to try to a negotiated resolution with the NFL for definite suspension of X number of games to basically cover you know, a, a, any of the allegations from all of the, these massage therapists. I mean, because until, until this closure here, this is going to be hanging over his head for the foreseeable future. And if this goes to trial, this could potentially undermine or compromise his 2023 season. So as I said last time, just take a suspension now, agree to six games or eight games, whatever it is, whatever the NFL is willing to settle on and have that be the, uh, the definite length of the suspension, no matter what else emerges, provided that there's nothing so out of the realm, because you're just, you're just, all you're doing here is empowering a civil litigator to game the system, to use the press, to use HBO, to use the news media, to sort of, you know, tighten the vice on Deshaun Watson and, and, and basically dictate what the NFL is going to do. If I'm the NFL, if I'm Watson, I don't let a private civil litigation attorney basically dictate and, and, and tell us how we're going to conduct our investigation or how many games we should suspend Watson. The league and Watson should basically undercut anything that Tony Busby could possibly be doing here and just agree on something. And at least moving forward, once you get past 2022, this is in the rearview mirror, at least in the NFL world. Right. I guess the, the part that we have not addressed is the court of public opinion, right? So you can have the suspension issued and I'm still watching it. Like I was talking with a friend, we were trying to figure out, you know, as much as we, Dan, you and I are talking about the legal part, there is the sports part. If you have a healthy Deshaun Watson, who's playing every single game of the regular season, the Cleveland Browns, by all indications, right, at least on paper, are, are, are certainly a Super Bowl contender. Um, but I'll, I'll say it. I, 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 you know, I think we have a, a decent audience in, in Cleveland. I'll, I'll say it. On paper, they are a Super Bowl contender with Watson. But, you know, I, I just don't know how – I don't know how the public will react to this Ray – when I'm saying a Ray Rice scenario, a suspension is rendered, and then more stuff comes out after the fact that might – Who do you define as the public? City of Cleveland, or are you talking about, you know, fans in, in you know, Houston or, or San Francisco? Are you talking about the national public, or are you talking about his constituency in Cleveland? Because I could tell you from the way the Baltimore fans behaved – and from the way the Pittsburgh Steeler fans conveniently forgot about the Ben Roethlisberger allegations, you know, there, you know, if, if Deshaun Watson is able to start games for the Cleveland Browns and wins and does very well there, they're going to be lifting them up on their shoulders. So I don't know if the court of public opinion really matters in Cleveland because uh, if it's your if it's your player in your city, you overlook a lot of stuff. So I'm gonna I'll disagree with you there. I've spoke to a lot of people within Cleveland who are not happy with the team. So. Let's see. I, I'm sure, Dan, you're not wrong. There's going to be a certain contingency that says winning cures everything. But there's certain people that think he's a football mm -hmm. player. People deserve second chances. There are other people that say, you know, allegations, whatever, one strike in, in my own personal mind, you're out. So I don't I, I think, Dan, the people that I'm referring to are the hypothetical people that might find their way to Brown Stadium and, and protest the fact that Watson is there, whether from Cleveland or not. I was listening to a podcast recently that had a Baltimore Ravens fan on. And he was saying, you know, he's making fun of the Pittsburgh Steelers with the Roethlisberger stuff. He was making fun of uh, now the Cleveland Browns have been the same division, taking a quarterback with these type of allegations. So, you know, I, I think there will be a public and maybe just the social media public that says, the, you know, that the guy shouldn't be playing. But I, I think that's uh, what I'm saying. I'm worried about public opinion is that there is some outcry that Watson should be sitting out. So. I don't know. He, I, I, again, everyone's innocent until proven guilty, but mm, we'll see how crazy the backlash is in, in the court of 
so-called public opinion, be it in Cleveland or, or be it just, or, you know, in the other 31 NFL teams? I really don't think it's going to matter ultimately because when he serves a suspension, everybody's going to move on. And the city of Cleveland, I mean, there are always going to be people in any fan base who object to, you know, the, the player continuing to have any affiliation with the, uh, with the team. You're not going to make hundred percent of the people satisfied. There will be, there will be outcries from certain segments. There's no question about it, but the fans by and large are going to accept them in Cleveland at some point. I mean, they, they're accepting them now. If his teammates accept them, it this will move on in the news cycle to the next thing because he was not accused. Uh, he, he was not charged criminally. And from a certain vantage point, or at least you know, it, it, from my lens, at least some part of this seems like ambulance chasing by an aggressive private civil litigation attorney. You're not wrong. And, and Dana, I said it, you showed, you told to me offline. Watson fatigue is real, but yeah. listen, it's a big sports story, so we got to cover it. Okay, Dan, let's do a little bit of a curveball. How about this? We're talking about one of our sponsors of our show, Underdog Fantasy. Dan, obviously, uh, we've talked about Underdog. These guys are the place to go with respect to daily fantasy, season-long fantasy. Uh, use our code CONDUCT to sign up uh, over there and get a $100 match bonus. Dan, we find ourselves with a fantasy story this week. Mm. Jock Peterson. Tommy Pham. So, okay, let's start with this. Tommy Pham and Jock Peterson are fantasy baseball league. Jock Peterson, as people know, spent many years with the Dodgers. He finished last season with the Atlanta Braves. Multiple-time World Series winner, makes his way to the Giants. Tommy Pham has played for a number of organizations, but relevant to this story, he played with the Padres. So it seems, if you're listening to, well, I guess to the incident, during batting practice, Tommy Pham walks up to Jock Peterson. They have some type of back and forth. Tommy Pham slaps Jock Peterson across the face, and they had the equivalent of what would be a benches clearing incident, except it was before the game. So it was kind of like a batting practices scuffle. Who knows, right? I know the right term for it. But they asked Jock Peterson what happens, and he essentially goes, well, we were in a fantasy league together. I put a player on the injured reserve when he was hurt, and then I added somebody, and I kept the player on the injured reserve afterwards. So he was accused, at least by... Some people in uh, this fantasy baseball chat of stashing injured players, Tommy Pham, I guess, being one of them. So I guess that's where the beef started. And then Jock Peterson, the timeline is a little unclear, but I guess I had been posting GIFs. I call them GIFs, Dan. People can make fun of me. I know uh, they, I think the proper term is GIFs, but he was posting a couple images of the San Diego Padres at, at the time, Tommy Pham's team collapsing under the weight of pressure. So there was uh, images of the Dodgers, the Giants, the Padres, and the as sense of the GIF or the, the images that the Padres were collapsing. So Tommy Pham says he slapped Peterson from a combination of cheating and fantasy when uh, his money was at stake. You don't want people messing with the money, making fun of the Padres. And you didn't know Peterson that well. And then, Dan, I think here's the, the last element of this. As someone that's been in a lot of fantasy leagues, I've definitely stashed my fair share of players on the injured reserve. Certainly, if ESPN rules allow it, I'm going to do it. Dan, where's the commissioner in all of this? When a player gets hurt, this is an interesting kind of quirk, and they have, a, at least depending on your format, it says you put an asterisk, it says IR. You could put them on like the version of the disabled list, and you could add a player. Now, at least on ESPN, which because I do this trick all the time, which is why I, I sided with Jock Peterson, if a player then is now healthy, he can remain in your injured list, even though he's healthy, if you don't add a new player. So that's kind of a sneaky way to mm -hmm. increase your roster size. So he was stashing players. I've done the trick a million times, but the ESPN roster settings allowed, and unless the commissioner steps in, you know, if ESPN default settings allow it, I'm going to take advantage of that rule. Well, all of this points to the larger issue. I think we should talk about Mike Trout's involvement, but, you know, people could read the story. Commissioner Trout. 
Yeah, Commissioner people Trump. could read the story. I, the whole, the whole, I think, point of our discussion of this isn't to sort of, uh, you know, just lay out all the, all the facts. I think most most people are somewhat familiar that there was a beef between Tommy Pham and, and Jock Peterson. He was, you know, uh, Pham slapped Peterson over, you know, sort of dis, disrespect disrespecting the Padres and for, you know, in his view, cheating at, at fantasy sports. And, you know, he was suspended three games from Major League Baseball after, you know, this this little incident broke out. And it does raise the issue, should players, should professional athletes be gambling on sporting events? And I think for time immemorial, there've been high stakes poker games in the back of the plane with NBA players. I remember, you know, Charles Oakley, I think slapped, Tyrone Hill back in the 1990s for you know welching on welching on a poker debt. So I think fantasy sports and maybe to some degree sports betting have replaced or supplanted the high stakes poker game in the back of the plane. And I wonder, you know, should should athletes be gambling on on sporting events? And they're gonna they're gonna find some activity to gamble on to sort of you know kill time. But this is really it it does at least in my mind raise the issue of where the league should draw the line on whether these athletes should be participating in high stakes gambling activities. So I, I was actually, Tony brought that up. I was thinking that if this was a dispute about fantasy baseball, would we be looking at this very differently? And I, I don't know the rule for baseball, but I know for football, NFL players are allowed to play fantasy football, but the NFL players are allowed to play fantasy football in their own sport, but the winnings have to be capped. I think it's a very low yeah, number. It's like, it's like in the low, hundreds, like 250, very low 500. But the league. MLB's rule is a little different. You can get, you can gamble, you can, you can bet on, on on sporting events not involving baseball. So so baseball players can so participate no fantasy, in legal no fa- fantasy baseball. Yeah, right. No fantasy baseball, no legal betting on baseball games, but they can play fantasy and bet on NBA games as long as they're operating or doing so in a legal jurisdiction. But a couple of elements here are really, you know, just at least in my mind, problematic that this is a very high stakes gambling activity and it has kind of shined a light on players, you know, betting lots of money. And maybe for re- it's all relative because for, for players like Mike Trout, a $10,000, but here's the buy-in. It's $10,000 per player. And if you're last in the league, you have to kick in another $10,000. So it's really not a high stakes gamble for is that, the, is that, did that come out? I hadn't seen that. Yeah. Yeah. Action. Yeah. Okay. So for, for you and me, it's a high stakes league. Well, hopefully in a few years, not, but for, for, for these highly compensated <laughs> professional athletes, it, it's just a competition. It's, it's enough money, enough skin in the game to make it interesting but it's not about the money, but they take it so seriously that it, 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 it does comp- it does cloud their judgment and, and you know, compel them to do things that are just sort of not exercising good judgment. You wouldn't assault, who would assault somebody in your fantasy league, in your fantasy league, in a major league baseball stadium, in front of fans, in front of teammates, in front of the media, these disagreements could sometimes get heated as Charles Barkley and all the incidents that he had been involved with slapping players in the league over perceived, you know, gambling debts and disrespect. I mean, I think the league has to sort of come, come out with a much more sensible policy to make sure that these incidents don't surface publicly again. As someone uh, that has been the commissioner of my fair share of leagues, I have never been slapped. Uh, I'm usually more uh, engaged in settling these disputes. The quote from Tommy Pham, we should read it. I thought it was funny. Trout did a terrible job, man. Trout's the worst commissioner in fantasy sports, which I thought was uh, amusing. And Dan, maybe the joke in all of this is that Tommy Pham was suspended for three games. He decided he agreed to that type of suspension. He did not appeal it, but he ended up losing about 111000 as a result of his suspension. So 
If that's true, Dan, that the buy-in of the league was 10000 and Tommy Pham was upset that Jock Peterson was messing with his money or whatever the quote was, Tommy Pham cost himself exponentially more than the buy-in for that league. So that's why Pham gets suspended. And, and you know, I'm a, I'm a Giants fan. Hopefully my bias is not here, but good on uh, Jock Peterson. I think Jock Peterson also said that Tommy Pham ended up leaving the league in week four, week five. You end up quitting the league in the middle of the year. And as someone that's been a commissioner of a number of leagues, I'm going to view that person as being in the wrong. There is no dispute that you can't work yeah. out. I think that that was poor form. So I'm going to take Jock's side here. I am as well. I mean, there's no justification for for hitting a player over over a dispute in fantasy sports. I mean, it, it does and it does kind of create, at least for Tommy Pham, potential long term career consequences, because now if you're a general manager of a real team, not a fantasy team, you might think twice about introducing somebody like that in your clubhouse because he does seem he, he this incident portrays him as a loose cannon. And the way he was, you know, in the interviews with the media, dropping F-bombs, it's like you might think twice about signing a player like that. So it probably portrays him as not the greatest teammate and not the best person to bring into a clubhouse. Whereas Jock Peterson, I think, comes out of this, you know, looking no worse for wear other than the embarrassment of being slapped in the outfield. But that soon will pass. Okay, Dan, I mean, we laid out, there's obviously a complex story, you know, when a, when a baseball player hits another player with respect to fantasy, you know, an incident. You know, I, I think, it, again, you know, we talked about it. If this was a fantasy baseball league, it would be a much bigger story that maybe something is going on. But Dan, you know, we are lawyers here. You know, I think we have to help write policies. Is there anything that baseball can do or change moving forward, you know, from this incident? What, what can we learn and what can baseball do? Yeah, a couple of days ago, I went on to SportsGrid to give a different, more extreme opinion as to what I think Major League Baseball should do going forward. I think all the leagues, and I said, all, I think I think all the leagues should impose a sort of a bright line ban against players betting on sports, even if it's not their own sport or participating in fantasy sports contests. And then a little bit a- afterwards, I began to sort of have doubts about the efficacy and wisdom of that proposal, because you can't treat players like children. You can't deny to them what any other American or what any other citizen can do. I think, I think banning the gambling on their own sport is, is sort of where I would draw the line because, you know, these players, you know, they're very well compensated. This has never been about the money. There's not an integrity risk associated with baseball players having a fantasy football league. And I think the punishment here kind of fit the crime. He slapped a player. He committed an assault. He was suspended three games for it. But I don't think he could take fantasy sports away from athletes, particularly if it doesn't concern their own particular sport. If it's if, if it's a crossover into another league, another sport, you know, how could you tell if the Major League Baseball Players Association were presented with this kind of prohibition? I would be fighting it. I would not agree to it in collective bargaining because it poses zero integrity risk. So this is just an extension of the high stakes poker games in the back of the airplane from the 1970s and 1980s. And that has been replaced by DFS. And hopefully it doesn't cross over into more serious integrity issues by gambling on games within your own league. So I think the leagues need to really be consistent with their education and reminder to their athletes as to what the do's and don'ts are. Because as we saw with NFL, with two players, with I think it was Josh Ross and Calvin Ridley, you had two NFL players that were foolish and stupid enough to sign up in their own names at a legal sports book, not realizing that there was anything wrong with it. So it really shows how much education is necessary, even for athletes that are surrounded by 
attorneys, advisors, agents. There's a long way to go. And, and I, I think this is an embarrassing incident, but it's not one that requires any policy change, just a consistent application of the education of players. The policy change might be getting a real commissioner because Mike Trout is too busy crushing baseballs. And a league with a lot of money at stake, 10000 is a lot too many. Yeah. Probably should have lots of Tommy Families, probably have some really uh-huh. uh, settling these disputes. But okay, Dan, let us move over to our, our third topic. That is Mr. Dan Snyder. So if you have a calendar out right now, if you're looking at your phone, I'd like you to open up the calendar app or uh, if you have a, like back in the day, like an actual physical calendar, which I used to have in my office. Circle June 22nd. Damn, that is the day that we might get Dan Snyder testifying on Capitol Hill. I know you had a lot of comments on it, but I think this was overdue. I've done a lot of hits and I've been saying, you know, what's people said, what's next? And I said, what's next is Capitol Hill making a statement and putting Dan Snyder under fire and making him answer the hard quitting questions. Dan Snyder is obviously the owner and the embattled owner of the Washington Commanders. He's hid over the years. He gives very few public statements. He hides behind litigation. He hides behind team statements. Now he's hiding behind his wife, Tanya Snyder, who is now, you know, this, I think by optics purpose, taking over day-to-day handling of the team. But now Snyder is going to have to answer directly to these allegations. Dan, what are your thoughts on the news today that they are now trying to get some Snyder directly? June well, 22nd. I'll tell you, if you're entering June 22nd or calendaring the testimony for June 22nd, I would implore everybody in the audience not to make travel plans to go to Washington, D.C., because Dan Snyder and Roger Goodell are not going to be walking into a hornet's nest like that, facing a very one-sided Congressional House Oversight Committee that they will not emerge unscathed if they testify, because it's a no-win situation. Either they are forced to disclose information about the investigation that's going to cast both of them in a very poor light, or if they assert their attorney-client privilege, the optics of that are going to be very bad. So I would, I, I'm very skeptical at this point that either will make an appearance before the committee on June 22nd, and I want to remind our audience that this is not a subpoena. This is a letter sent by the House Oversight Committee's chairpersons inviting Commissioner Roger Goodell and Dan Snyder to testify. It has no force of law. And the NFL responded today that they will respond in a timely manner. The league PR office did not say, we have every intention of appearing and participating. We'll have more information later in the week. Nowhere in the PR office's statement was any agreement to appear as a witness. So I'm skeptical that either is going to show up and that's going to set the stage. But let me let me stop you here. Why why wouldn't they issue a subpoena? What would be the reason behind that? Because they're trying to save well, they should, face. I think they should have issued a subpoena a long time ago, or at least oh. or, or at least expedited. You know this this timeline. The letter that they sent to uh, the, the commissioner and to Dan Snyder today is seven months, almost seven months after the original investigation was launched. After months after documents were first you know, requested long after the stonewalling had taken place. I mean, the last time we discussed this topic on conduct detrimental, I believe was in like March or maybe early April. And I asked, I asked you then, I said, what, what is taking the House Oversight Committee so long to take this to the next stage, which would be subpoenaing the records and issuing a subpoena for live testimony. I think they're trying to play nice here and just you know do it consensually first, the easy way. And then if both witnesses either no show or are uncooperative, I think the next, you know, the next stage or at least the next gambit after that 
is going to be issuing a subpoena and non-compliance with a subpoena leads to contempt of Congress. I think ultimately, if the House Oversight Committee is going to take this to the limit, we're going to be looking at a court battle where either the commanders, Dan Snyder or the NFL could launch a, a lawsuit questioning the authority of this congressional committee to perform you know, non-legislative functions and, and, and essentially act as a law enforcement agency or an executive branch agency. I think there are some really close questions here as to the powers and limits of the authority of the oversight committee to essentially investigate the Washington commander's workplace situation. So I think the league and the commanders aren't going to put themselves in a position where they're going to look bad by issuing you know, privileged and confidential and saying nothing versus saying something and potentially creating a far worse situation by cooperating and giving up the kind of information that the league has been trying to hide, you know, all this time. I mean, they never published, never asked Beth Wilkinson to publish a report. Everything was kept under a lid. And given the NFL's stance here and Snyder's stance, they're not going to volunteer this information, the same information they've been trying to conceal simply because they're invited to testify. So they're either going to resist or say nothing. You know, I don't really have much to add. I mean, I, I look at the commander statements. Uh, they're saying that they're going to respond in kind. I'd like to think we do want to believe our billionaire owners that if you really have nothing to hide, you would be willing to testify. But any lawyer with uh, half a brain would tell you there's no is much more harm than good that can come from that scenario. But we'll see. We'll see what comes in advance of June but 22nd. They, That's really a couple of weeks away then. But they do have something to hide. Well, they certainly have something to hide. But, you know, and I, I will say this, Dan, is, you know, I think our last big sports figure that was called in front of a, uh, you know, these politicians was Mark Emmert for the NCA during the NIL hearings. And he was hit pretty hard, but he didn't have the type of, we're going to say, alleged skeletons in his closet that Dan Snyder did. He had you know, incompetent and stealing money from players. He didn't have sexual assault, sexual harassment allegations. So, you know, right. I, there's there's sometimes no right way to answer those. And Dan, we talked about it, you know, these ugly allegations with Johnny Depp, Deshaun Watson. In, in this day and age, and we, we talked about it a little bit on our last show together with Rusty Hardin. We are a show, and we should say it, we should probably repeat it every show. Innocent until proven guilty is the standard, you know, it's someone's burden to prove those cases, right? Sean Watson, we're talking about allegations, but Rusty Hardin, we talked about the last time we talked about Sean Watson, has kind of said in this day and age, when you are accused of something, social media would basically paint you as having done it and you have to kind of prove that you didn't. So, you know, we talked about Sean Watson, we talked about John Depp. I think Dan Snyder, if his lawyers were ever given a public statement, they'd probably say something similar. You know, it's the burden is not on us to, to prove that we didn't do something, but that's what it's going to be like if we go up on Capitol Hill. We're going to be, you know, treated treated as if we are an offender when we should be presumed innocent. Well, there are not going to be any charges. This is just simply a committee investigation of the sort of the workplace culture of the Washington commanders without any possible charges looming in the distance. No, but, but what, there is a, an allegation made specifically against yeah. Snyder. So there yeah. are charges, right? And then there's the court of public opinion that can charge you. The NFL and Dan Snyder have to pay close attention to what's taking place in Nevada. There's a discovery process that now will move forward at some point in the John Gruden lawsuit that has a close nexus to what's going on 
in this congressional investigation. And what the League and Dan Snyder have been known for for the last seven months is stonewalling Congress. Do you think seven months after stonewalling Congress and not willing to turn over any documents, or at least not giving them the documents that Congress is looking for, that a simple invitation to appear that is below the line of a subpoena is going to compel their attendance? Of course it's not. Either they'll show up and assert the attorney-client privilege or you know, decline the invitation to appear, which will then transition into the next legal frontier, which is Congress issuing subpoenas for documents and live witness testimony, which then I think would set up the next phase of this battleground, which could be a lawsuit over the discoverability and admissibility of these documents in a congressional investigation, because does the attorney-client privilege which is what the League and Snyder are, are, are hiding behind, does that even apply in a congressional investigation? I think ultimately this is going to be resolved. It will either be resolved in a federal district court or the clock is going to run out on the Democrats in the House of Representatives. And if there is a changing of the guard after the 2022 general election, I think that this investigation is going to grind to a halt because you're already hearing the Republican members of Congress decrying this investigation. So this is a very political battle. And right now we're only five, six months away from the general election. It's possible that the League and Dan Snyder and the Washington commanders could basically run out the clock here through more stonewalling, followed by litigation. Let's put a pin in the Dan Snyder conversation. We'll obviously keep tabs on that. It's a story that's not going away. There's obviously some uh, you know, updates we're monitoring on the stadium relocation front. So maybe, Dan, that's perhaps some of the reason why this is popping up now. But we'll keep an eye on it. Before uh, we, we move on, I have one thing to, to add. A reminder, our show is sponsored by Themis Bar Review, the top bar prep company in the galaxy. They're doing it differently. You know, As people have been hearing more and more about Themis, that's maybe not just us. That's just Themis doing it differently and bringing an exciting new approach to bar prep. So uh, definitely check out Themis. Go to themisbar.com slash con detrimental. Dan, the, the other story, which we'll try to hit, I think, in our next episode, the story that John Nucci helped us cover uh, once upon a time, the Saudi Golf League is now launching and they've announced their roster. A bunch of names that people will know they're, they're handing out the bag, so to speak. One name that uh, is very big, the number 13th ranked golfer in the entire world. Dustin Johnson in a surprise addition to that roster. So we'll see. I, I've already seen some reports that Dustin Johnson is losing some sponsorships over his affiliation with the Saudi Golf League. Dan, any, any comments to add on, on that front? It's a story I think we should monitor, but no brewing litigation as of yet. I mean, he was guaranteed $100 million plus million. Uh, I think he weighed the risk of losing sponsorships versus $100 million, whatever that dollar amount was, to be promised, you know, nine figures. I think the, the loss of sponsorships in the short term is a small price to pay for him. And it really does, going forward, the, the, the ball is in the PGA's court. What is the PGA going to do about it? Because they've been threatening to ban any player from their golf tournaments who participate in this Saudi-sponsored league. And You know what that sounds they, like, Dan? It sounds like a group boycott, if you ask me. Oh, I think this, this is definitely setting the stage. For litigation at some point. I mean, the PGA is supposed to be not for profit and it raises some antitrust issues. And I think that's ultimately where this is headed, whether or not it involves this golfer or some, some other golfer. But if the, if the PGA continues to insist that any player who plays in the Saudi league will face a ban, 
you can you can bet there'll be an antitrust lawsuit filed at some point, and then we'll be able to devote an entire episode to the issue. Well said, Dan. I think we can put this episode in the books. Certainly a bunch of good topics. Thank you to Jock Peterson for providing us with a assault slash okay. fantasy football story or, or Tommy Pham. Dan, I think that's about it. Anything to add before we, we put this episode in the books? You're forgetting one thing, Dan. Let's go Rangers. How about that? I'm very thankful that the Rangers are playing hockey in the month of June. The last time that that happened, I believe, might have been 1994. So that could be a good omen. I think the last time the Rangers were in the semis, no, they were in the semis when they got knocked out by Tampa. That was May. No, they played in the four, 2014 Stanley Cup Finals in June. So it's a bre- it's so refreshing to watch Ranger hockey in the month of June. So win or lose, I'm, I don't believe we're playing with house money, but this is just so exciting to be able to experience potentially seven more games. Hey, Dan, what's your official prediction in the Rangers Lightning Series? If I could predict Tampa. No, no, no. There was a requirement here. Yeah, I think the Rangers are going to meet their match because the, first of all, the the Tampa Bay Lightning, the defending Stanley Cup champions, they still have so many of their core players in their prime and the goaltending advantage that the Rangers have enjoyed against Pittsburgh and Carolina. I think it becomes like a wash in the conference finals because Tampa has a goalie that's close to being the equal and in some, in some people's opinions, maybe even better than Shesterkin. I think Shesterkin's the best in the league, but the margin of difference between him and, and uh, Vasilevsky is so slight that I don't think the Rangers are going to you know, you know, ultimately win the battle of attrition in goal like they did in the Pittsburgh and Carolina series. So I think you- it's going to be, I think it's Tampa in six. You heard it here. Dan Wallach has, for the third time in a row, picked against the Rangers. Dan, here's my analysis. New York Rangers, team of destiny. Let's go, Rangers. Let's end the pod here, Dan. Let's end on that note. Yeah. Maybe we'll make a friendly wager between you and I. Dan, I think that'll that'll end it. Yep. And we'll see everyone next time on another episode of Connor Detrimental. Detrimental.